today I'm reading from Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you, will, then you may all wash your feet and rest under his tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as, we, do as you say. So Abraham hurried to, into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said. Get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it to make some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected the choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who, who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had, had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under the tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have this child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> this is God's word. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It's kind of like just lift up his spirit a little bit in the room. Yeah. So for our series, we're starting a brand new series here at Reality. It's our Advent series called Christ in Strange Places. And this series is meant to explore how Christ has shown up in times and places that seem strange, like that one, and yet pivotal to the plan and to the work of the gospel, the advent of Christ Yet through these messages and through these passages and stories that you're going to hear, it's going to help to show that in these sometimes what seems to be strange encounters with God presents actually something beautiful and humbling about who he is and what he's doing even in the midst of our lives right now. And for our time today, I want to explore this passage, Genesis 18, verses one through 15, on the topic and the idea of hope. On the topic and the idea of hope. And with that, I just wanna hit three points to be able to do that, to pull from this passage where I think the author, the narrator, is trying to communicate to us. One is I'm gonna start off by talking about old promises. Two is awkward laughs. And three is possible impossibilities. First, old promises. 
the way that this account unfolds, the focus of these verses is really the conversation between Sarah and one of these three men. And you kind of see that because from the beginning to the end, it kind of just all powers and goes through one event after the other. And then as they're talking, it just slows down into this moment. And so while that is going to be the focus of this message and for this passage, the author is giving us some information up front. He wants us to actually hold something within our minds as we think and as we reflect about this story, which is old promises. So if you look at the passage, the passage begins in verse 1 when it says that the Lord appeared in the warmth of the day. That passage actually connects directly with Genesis chapter 3 where it's God who walks in the cool of the day. And then again later on in verse Nine, it's going to say and ask the same question that God asks in the midst of that conversation in Genesis chapter 3, which is, where are you? As he asks that to Adam, this man asks the exact same question. And at the very end, the story of this passage and of Genesis 3 ends on the same hopeful note, which is that there's supposed to be a son a child that one day, that one day will change things, that will one day renew things. And it's the same pattern, comes, walks in. Where are you? Indicating some kind of lostness of shame and yet hope in the midst of all of that. And what, the, and what this passage wants us to do is to hang on to the idea of God's old promise of hope. That very same promise that actually, as we think about the Advent season and Christ and the promise of Christ is still the exact same promise that hangs over us today, which is that if Christ is present, if he enters into our reality, which is what the promise is, right? The promise is that one day God would deal with evil and not just deal with evil, but renew and restore us, and that those who follow him bring that little piece of heaven where you are. And that through the ability of your kindness, of your words, your generosity, that it would reflect a kingdom of God. And that is made possible through the hope of this child, the Advent child of Christ. And that's really beautiful because that's the same promise that from then carries on to today. And that should be really hopeful news. It should create a, a longing in our hearts to see reality and to experience reality so differently. Because if we really believe and experience and think in that light of reality, then it means that we treat people different, the things that we own differently, and the and our very environments around us, which means we can sacrifice, we can give and be kind out of a cost to ourselves because of this great and amazing hope. And yet, I, I wonder, 
I wonder how much actually we actually really import that hope and that truth into our lives that we're really willing to risk, sacrifice, and give away ourselves as if this hope really does exist in our lives. I think, to be honest, just like Sarah, she's held on to this old promise for a really long time. And like Sarah, when you hold on to a promise, onto a hope for a really long time, and you live a lived experience that is different from the hope that you're holding on to, when we hear hopeful statements like this, sometimes we can't help but to laugh. Two, awkward laughter. You know, one of the cool things every once in a while is that I get to um, get Maddox out of school early because it's minimum day for him. And, and we get to go and we, we get to drive. Maddox is my uh, middle son. He's 10 years old. And we get to hang out and enjoy a delicious meal together. And he always chooses hamburgers because that's, that's just his jam. So we, we go and we eat and we enjoy a delicious meat patty together. And on the way, you know, I don't know what it is with kids, but whenever you're driving with kids, they always get kind of chatty. It's like the movement helps the brain to go. And he just starts talking to me about his day and like what's going on. You know, and then within a turn of a dime, as we're talking about how his day is going, all of a sudden he just randomly turns to me and he says, bye next year is going to be a great year. Did you know that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are going to run for USA president? This is exciting. <laughs> I did that too. I laughed. Yeah, I wish too. I laughed because it felt like, you know, have you ever played that game of Mad Libs? Where you have like a paragraph with blanks and you're supposed to just throw adjectives and nouns and adverbs and then you just throw it out and then it's just read back to you and you can laugh because though, though the words make sense grammatically, when you're thinking about the logic, like in this exciting, good election, it's, it just doesn't fit within my lived experience of the last four years and then the four years before that. And I laugh like you laughed for the same reason, which is that we have experiences. We've had experiences in our lives that even though, to be honest, we, we want to think differently, our experiences many times don't allow us to. Because I remember four years ago, I remember that the words I probably would have filled in is words like, hard, uncomfortable, and I'm thinking about holiday meals where people have different thoughts of human flourishing and politics. Awkward would be another great word to stick in there. 
And what happens over time is that as we live experiences out in our lives, from a young age until we are now, sociologists would call that what we're actually really doing is building what's called a plausibility structure. A plausibility structure. A plausibility structure is our own set of truths of the world that we navigate in that define the truths, the rules, and even the very roles that we play in them. It's the way we create our reality. And to be honest, sociologists would say that it's not a bad thing because it allows us to live in a world where you don't constantly have to second guess if that chair is real, it's functional, and you can use it. It's important, actually, that you have a plausibility structure because you're not constantly have to rethink every single thing that's thrown in front of you. But the thing is, because we live in a different side of reality, we also have experiences that are bad, that are painful. Sometimes we have conversations that are uncomfortable, relationships where there's lots of tension in them. Like if you grew up with a parent that you have a hard time with, your plausibility structure of a relationship, for example, of someone who's a father or an authority is gonna be different from someone who had a healthy relationship with their father. And what this does over time is that within our plausibility structures, it doesn't actually really allow us to live in another reality because we have been formed and conformed by our experiences, by what society has input into us, and our cultural norms of that. And that's exactly the experience that Sarah has right here in this passage. We, like Sarah, live in the narratives that we have played in our minds and have experienced. From verse nine on, the conversation again shifts from three men just sitting in front of them, just relaxing, to this conversation. And it's interesting because Sarah isn't introduced to us for the first time in this passage. So if you are a reader from the Bible, especially from Genesis onto this chapter of chapter 18, you kind of already have a, a feel and a sense for who Sarah is. But the narrator, because he wants you to always hold a couple of things in your mind, the other thing that he wants you to hold in your mind is he wants to make sure that you remember who Sarah is. He wants you to remember who Sarah is. And when God asks the question in this passage, where are you? It's already kind of giving you a hint. There seems to be something off. Seems to be something like, a, like an element of shame, of devaluing already going into the passage as you begin the conversation. And in verses 11 and 12, he fills in the detail for you even more. He begins to talk about how she's old. She's old. She's 90 years old in this passage, most likely. And so the reality for her, because, you know, the Bible, because it flows through history and time, is states within reality, trust me when I say this, 
a 90-year-old woman hearing the news that she's going to have a baby soon is not normal. <laughs> it's not normal. It's not like it's just saying this truth as if it's biologically possible for all 90-year-old women to have babies. It's, it's things within reality. It's giving you a truth about her condition. But not only that, it uses actually the word old here. And the word old here, the author actually wants you to have a, a word picture Because that word old actually means like old, like an old piece of cloth. And what that word picture is meant to do is to describe the state that she is and feels like she's in. Like for example, like when you have an old shirt that you don't wear anymore because it's stained enough, maybe has enough holes in them, but it's still functional enough what you'll do is you'll probably like rip it into pieces, but still use it. It's still functional, but it's discardable. That once it's, it's fit all the wear that's gone out of it, it's discardable. And the word picture that he's trying to drive home is not this, that she's old and she can't even be an active participant in society, It's also giving you this word picture also by holding that and talking about her age, this combination of value. Because back in that society, in that time, a woman's value would come not just from the children that she would have, but specifically from the males that would be born. So in that societal context, she can no longer contribute to it. In that societal context, she has an inputted value from having children that the rest of the society can benefit from as well. But also, because of Abraham being a man of his time, she also doesn't feel very valued by Abraham as well. In fact, if, if you have read other parts and passages in this scripture, what you realize is they, they probably do not have a very good marital relationship which is why when she talks about, in verse 12, shall I have this good pleasure, it's not the pleasure of a son, it's actually a specific type of pleasure. It's sexual, intimate pleasure. So what she's actually indicating is that her and Abraham haven't been intimate for a very long time. And in fact, when you read past scripture, past accounts, before we get to this one, you realize that many times, actually, Abraham would use Sarah to protect himself. He would give her away to other people to sleep with her just so that he could feel protected and be protected. So in this moment in time, what you find is Sarah, who's not just socially devalued, but also emotionally devalued. And in the back of the background, you also have Sarah's maid or servant with a child from Abraham that was able to do what she wasn't able to do. And what the author wants you to hold is old promises with this situation that you have right now, hopelessness. She feels devalued. She's towards the end of her life. Societally and relationally, Sarah 
is providing no value. And again, like Sarah, we, what we expect of our realities builds our assumptions that then build the realities that we live in. We laugh at hopeful statements like she laughs at hopeful statements and promises. I think, to be honest, not because we don't want to believe in those things. I think like Sarah, we laugh because we have lost the ability to see any other reality. So, how do you then shift? How do you move from a place that seems hopeless? How does Sarah move from a place where she's, out, where she's able to see reality differently? How do we, like her, move from living in a state of impossibility to a place of possibility? Point three, the possible impossibilities. In the passage after Sarah laughs, the man that she's talking to in this passage says this, interesting kind of turn of phase in the conversation. He says, is there anything too difficult? And what he's doing when he's using that word difficult, he is beginning to affirm her reality. He's not denying the reality. He's not asking her to even escape the reality by asking that question. He's affirming her reality. But in the Hebrew, that word for difficult or hard actually carries a dual meaning. It carries a dual meaning. And the dual meaning to that word isn't that it's just difficult or hard. It's actually the word wonderful. And so to read it differently, what he's actually kind of saying to her, is there anything too hard? Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Wonder, is there anything too wonderful? You know, kids are really good at wonder. Talking about another car conversation with another one of my kids. This one, she's six years old in kindergarten. And uh, one of the things she really enjoys is playing soccer. And from my house to the soccer field, because we have to pass in front of the 101 entrance, there's always a lot of traffic because, of course, they pick practice time to be around the time that everyone leaves work that's trying to rush to the freeway. And so, unfortunately, many times, either I have to leave home a lot earlier or the reality of it is I'm praying to God that somehow there isn't going to be traffic on the very left lane that I typically choose to drive in. And because Joy really enjoys soccer practice, she gets frustrated because she wants to get there on time to maximize the time that she's going to have with her friends. And so for her, as we're sitting there in traffic, she begins to look, and then she just blurts out a statement. She's like, you know, Popeye, what you should do is that you should buy a jet plane. 
Because if you had a jet plane, then you could just fly right over this traffic. And then you could just land on the field. And then when practice is done, you could just go away. And we could just park at the bottom of the cul-de-sac and it's fine, we're we're good. And then we could just do that every time I have practice. It's funny because I tend to not think of reality in that way. When she brought up the jet plane, immediately my mind was, man, if I got a jet plane, how much would insurance cost? <laughs> Where would I find jet fuel? Where would I park it? What ordinor, you know, noise ordinance would I be interrupting? The constant lift and land the plane? Like I'm thinking about all of these obstacles because in my reality, those are all real obstacles. But what's great about kids is that they never think about the obstacles. They think about always what is possible. And that's what wonder is. Wonder is the ability to look at the possibilities. Or another way of putting it, it's the ability to ask a different set of questions. That we could both look at the same thing and ask different questions. Creatives usually are very good at this. They could look at scenery and paint a painting that's beautiful because they're looking at the same thing and can paint a different reality by wondering. If you think about a couple hundred years ago, before anyone could fly in the sky, it took for someone to look at the sky and stare at a bird and wonder and wonder, could it be possible? Could it be possible that one day someone could fly in the sky? It took someone to wonder and ask the question, is it possible even to go past the sky? Wonder allows us to look at reality with a different set of questions. And what it does is it begins to enter into the state of imagination. And if wonder is the door and imagination is the path, before you can get to hope, you still have to answer one question at a certain point, which is, is it possible? Is what I'm wondering And what I'm imagining, is it possible? Though the author in these these verses, at the very beginning tells you it's the Lord, the Yahweh, meaning like it's his proper name for God. From verse 2 and on, it constantly, instead of talking about one, it's three. And it's interesting because he keeps going in this motif of three and talking in three and in unison and speaking in three. And what the, I think what the narrator is doing is he is purposefully being obscure. Because is it one God or is it three men? Or is it three God? One, you kind of like kind of almost do this like mental back and forth. And he's doing that on purpose 
And I think it's because what he wants us to do is to enter into Sarah's wonder. He wants us to enter into Sarah's wonder. Because what is fascinating is that the text is pulling you into her wonder because in the text, she doesn't know who she's talking to. The way she responds, the way she laughs, assumes that it can't be God because afterwards, when she finds out who it is, that it is God, she gets scared. And it's interesting because kind of held that back for me a little bit because what's interesting is that if I would have dropped that little bit of knowledge at the very beginning, maybe your mind, like mine would, because of our plausibility structure, is more naturalistic. We're probably more curious about how is that possible? How is it possible that a spiritual being, especially God, can be made flesh? And what is it about there being one but three? And it's interesting because when you think about the word of difficult and wonderful, the intermediary, the, the middle word right there is mystery. That there's something mysterious about how God moves. That even in this moment of one but three, it almost echoes in the future something, doesn't it? And what God is pulling us to do is to help us to see that that would actually be the wrong set of questions to ask actually in this passage. It's the wrong set of questions to ask in this passage. Because the author actually doesn't care to answer those questions. For one, because they live in a different world with a different plausibility structure. They would have, reference back to Unseen Realm series, if you remember that series, that the overlap between the physical reality and spiritual reality, they would have had no problem thinking in that paradigm. And so the author actually isn't interested in answering that question that you might have been asking as you've been thinking and reflecting on this passage. The narrator actually is driving you to ask a very different question. And the question that he wants you to ask is, if that is God, which the narrator at the very beginning answers it is, then the question that she should ask is, why is he there? Why is God there in the story? And it, and it should prepare you, if you were reading from that time in context, because the author already told you who Sarah is. Sarah is someone viewed by everybody else around her in society as someone very not important. She's worthless. She has no value to her husband, to society. There is nothing that she could offer, which makes the question even heavier. Which is, why then in the world would God show up to someone who has no value and no worth to anybody around her? And to answer that question, 
we begin to understand a little bit more of the culture back then, which is that if you are someone important, especially if you are a god, or in particular, if you were someone wealthy or noble, you would never, you would never be present with someone like that. In fact, if you had to communicate anything, you'd use a servant or a servant's servant to go and give that message. That's what you would do because when you're present, if that important person decides to be present with you, what it actually does is it imputes that value onto that person. And what the author wants you to see in the passage is that what he is doing is that he's basically signaling to you that Sarah is important. That Sarah isn't a, a byproduct isn't just a, a passive recipient in the story of the promise, by God physically being present there is saying that she is vital to the promise. And that what God does by just being present and awaking wonder in her because he is present, he is able to activate value, worth, dignity, and to help her believe and to see and imagine that she is important. That this old promise with an impossible impossibility within her plausibility structure is possible because the God of the universe so loves her, values her, and desires to partner with her in one of the most, if not the most, beautiful act in human history. In reflecting on this passage, what you begin to see is that because God has imputed all this value and restored her, it allows her to become a person expectant, a person full of hope, who understands that the God of the universe loves her and values her. And by that, she moves as a person who's hopeful and expectant. Because later on in Genesis chapter 21, you're gonna find out that she's actually going to choose to do something she hasn't been able to do in a very long time, which is to be intimate with Abraham. And they're gonna have a child. And his name's gonna be Isaac. And the way that God moves within her life reminds us that if God is present, then impossible things can become possible because of who he is and how much he loves you. And as I kind of close, I just want to ask a couple of questions for you to think about which is that as you reflect on your own life, who are you becoming? What are the situations that God is pulling at you 
to help you to dream with him, to wonder with him in, instead of seeing reality in only one way. You know, for me, this example is kind of personal because as Mike introduced me earlier, I am the pastoral resident here at Reality. And if you're wondering, what is that? What it is, is it means that in the next year to two years, I'm going to plan to re revitalize a church, God willing. And what that also means is that as much as I love the people here at Reality, especially the amazing staff of people that I have grown to love very deeply, that also means that I'm going to have to make a very uncomfortable decision to leave. Where I'm going to just go and hope that God is going to do something. And it's interesting because I've heard a lot of different things too, like this is going to be really exciting to like, you're going to die. <laughs> and it's interesting because one of the things that I hang my hat on when I think about this is Tim Keller. Years ago, when he was given an interview, which is a very famous, well-known church, Redeemer New York, was asked the question, like, how did you know when you came to New York that you were going to be successful? What made you think that when you came here, you were going to succeed? And his answer was, I didn't know I was going to succeed. And I didn't know I was going to fail. His answer was, I didn't come because I knew I was going to succeed. And I didn't come because I knew I was going to fail. I came because I knew that because God had called me, that I'd become something through it. And that through whatever happened, that through whatever I became, that God would use me to help others to do likewise. And that's the question I want to leave you today. Was as you are right now in your life, not trying to change the reality, how can you today wonder with God because of the beauty and the awesomeness and the longing that we all should have for the person of Christ and what he brings into our lives when he is present.